What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Paul Thomas Chamberlain to the show. Paul is an associate professor of history at Columbia University, and he's the author of a wonderful new history of the Cold War, titled The Cold War's Killing Fields, Rethinking the Long Peace. In one sense, the book is traditional narrative history, and it's one that's well-written with choice quotes and wonderful anecdotes, and it makes it a a real pleasure to read. But on a deeper level, the the book invites us or or perhaps compels us to rethink our understanding of the Cold War uh, and the place it played in the history of of the globe in the second half of the 20th century. In particular, it reminds us that despite the label, the Cold War, uh, that there were real, very real human costs for the violence that, that characterized that conflict in Asia and the Middle East. So with that, Paul, uh, thanks for joining us, uh, and I'm looking forward to talking to you on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks for having me. So I thought we'd start, as we usually do, by just uh, asking you to, um, to introduce yourself to the audience. How did, how, how did you um, decide that history was for you, and, 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 and how did you decide that you wanted to do that at a university? That's a great question. Um, so I, uh, I began my undergraduate studies with the intention of being a music major. Uh, I, oh, wanted wow. to, I wanted to play classical guitar and uh, quickly decided that that was uh, the, uh, the you know, entry to a career as a musician was, was a little bit too narrow. Uh, and so I decided to do something <laughs> a little bit more practical. <laughs> Which uh, you know, to my to my eighteen year old self, seemed like uh, uh, political science, actually. <laughs> um, so I uh, I began as a political science major and uh, was in the you know in, in taking those courses. I also was taking classes in history, and I quickly decided that I really loved my history classes. Um, and just kind of sitting there in uh, in my. Uh, classrooms at Indiana University was just kind of fell in love with uh, the lectures I was hearing and the, the topic itself and decided to eventually just kind of switch over uh, and focus completely on writing of history. So, so why, why the Cold War? Why late 20th or mid 20th century history? Um, so I was, I became interested in foreign relations, uh, Mm. and particularly in the nature of American power. Um, I, let's see, I, I would have graduated, I got my BA in 2002. Uh, so I, you know, distinctly remember, uh, being a, uh, Mm. I guess a junior, uh, and watching, uh, 9-11, uh, and, and have that having a major impact on, on the uh, the world around me and the sort of issues that that people were talking about uh, at the university and 
um, you know, it was, it was an interesting time to be alive, uh, to, to see all these changes um, taking place. And so that had an impact on, on the way that I looked at the world uh, and thought about, you know, what I wanted to do. Um, I also worked with a historian at Indiana named Nick Culliter. Uh, huh. And uh, he, uh, I, I initially wanted to work on the CIA, uh, and he was a diplomatic historian. And working closely with him on a uh, on an honors thesis, I ended up kind of drifting into that field, uh, mm. and decided uh, after taking, I guess, a year off uh, between my undergrad and grad, decided that I wanted to to stay in the field and I wanted to do it seriously and, and to go and try to pursue a PhD. And you did that at Ohio State. I did. Yeah, yeah I was so, fortunate to get into the program. <laughs> um, for those of you who don't know, in the audience, which is probably almost everybody in the audience, Paul and I um, both graduated, got our degrees from Ohio State, our graduate degrees. Although he uh, started much later than I did. Um, and so this is your second book. What was your first about? So my first book was a study of uh, the Palestine Liberation Organization in the context of what I think of as the global 1960s and 1970s. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in, um, on the one hand, U.S. policy toward the, uh, the, the PLO and the question of Palestine uh, in this formative period after the 1967 war. Uh, but really what I was more interested in was the relationship between the Palestinians and other third world liberation movements. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, for instance, I was, I was interested in, in what impact the Vietnam war had on the Palestinians, um, you know, to what degree were there connections between Vietnamese communists and, you know, Palestinian liberation fighters, uh, what did those connections do for the Palestinians, um, you know, and then more broadly, um, you know, in the course of doing the, the research, uh, and, uh, you know, getting particularly into the Arab language, uh, documents, I found that the Palestinians were actually talking extensively about third world liberation movements. Uh, hmm. so, you know, they're the, the touch point for a lot of their thinking about what they ought to be doing, uh, in pursuit of their own revolution, uh, was the Chinese revolution. Um, and then of course they're talking extensively about Cuba they're talking about Algeria, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, they're talking about the Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was really interested in this network of post-colonial revolutionaries functioning beneath the Cold War. Uh, so, you know, there's this overarching structure of the Cold War. Uh, but then beneath it, there there's a, an entire web of international relations between, you know, and sometimes, you know, guerrilla movements. Um, and so... It, the book is really a story about how the Palestinians tried to navigate this uh, sort of cosmopolitan third world revolutionary moment. So, so this book is maybe bigger, maybe not, but broader anyway. So, so why did you decide to write this book? One of the one of the insights that I I received from a colleague who worked on the Algerian Revolution uh, was that. Um, you know, in contrast to what he was working on, uh, he, he thought it was notable uh, that the Palestinians were actually not uh, not all that violent, comparatively, mm-hmm. um, which I, I think needs to be qualified a little bit. Um, you know, the FLN in Algeria killed 
you know, was killing the death toll of that was, was tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people in this, this revolution. Whereas in the story that I was telling with the Palestinians, it was typically dozens, right? And so this notion of um, this idea that revolution in order to be successful is often tremendously bloody uh, and that body counts actually do matter um, was something that, that resonated with me a little bit. Uh, and I, I was interested in investigating a little, investigating that question a little bit more. Um, and, and that, that just sort of put that, this story that I was trying to tell with the first book in a new light. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I decided that I wanted to, to look at some of these broader currents of third world revolution, um, you know, from, from this other perspective. Mm. So I made an assumption, and maybe I'm not right. Do you think of yourself as a Cold War historian? I do. Yeah. Um, I, I think um, mm-hmm. I have a broader definition of what the Cold War is than many people mm-hmm. who would refer to themselves as Cold War historians. Um, I think there's a... So, so a, yeah. So maybe that's the right point to, to ask you then, and sorry if I interrupted you, but... Mm-hmm. Along those lines, can you say something about what, so, so, so the question I've got in my notes is, where is Cold War history in, in 2018? And part of that is, how do you think people mostly define the Cold War? I think it's a definition that's very much in flux right now. Um, if you were to go back to the 1990s, um, I think that you would find that an overwhelming majority of scholars would probably argue that the Cold War uh, is consists essentially of the superpower rivalry, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, the United States and the Soviet Union, and it's a it's a diplomatic contest uh, between these two superpowers, and it's primarily something that uh, takes pla- takes place across a North Atlantic axis, so to mm-hmm. speak, right? So you're dealing with North America, you're dealing with Europe, and you're dealing uh, with uh, with the Soviet Union. That begins to fall apart, I think, once you get into the 21st century and larger and larger numbers of people now uh, have have come to talk about the Cold War as more of a global system uh, mm-hmm. and something that is taking place uh, to a large degree outside of this east-west axis and pulling in more of the north-south uh, dynamics. And of course, the the most important work uh, to to do this uh, is uh, Ard, or is Ad Arno Westad's Global Cold War, um, which came out I think in two thousand five, two thousand six, and I think mm-hmm. really connected a lot of the arguments that other people were already making, and became a statement mm-hmm. uh, that, in my mind, has really put to rest uh, this idea that uh, the Cold War is something that just takes place between Washington and Moscow. You so so tell me about the sources for your book and and maybe one way to approach this is what do we know now that in terms of documentary a- access that we didn't know twenty years ago that have helped shape your argument or 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 could you have written this book from a documentary perspective twenty years ago? Yeah, I, I think it's you know it, it's related to this larger evolution in the historiography um, mm-hmm. that that goes back to the nineteen nineties. Um, and uh, ties in uh, and actually to uh, to John Lewis Gaddis's uh, 
calls for a new international history of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Um, And in his time at Yale, he was really instrumental uh, in pushing um, young scholars to learn foreign languages and go out into the world and try to to get into foreign archives, not to just, Mm -hmm. you know, stay in American archives. And so this became a big movement uh, in the, the mid to late 1990s, and I think has uh, has remained uh, a major force in the field of Cold War history, this idea that if we are really interested in the Cold War, we have to be doing international history that is multilingual, multi-archival. Um, and so a lot of the, to my mind, a lot of the, the most interesting uh, cutting-edge work being done uh, on the Cold War seeks to do that. Uh, initially, I think that was a response to this hope that the Soviet archives would open up after the end of the Cold War. And for mm-hmm. a short period of time, they did. But then they've, they've kind of closed down uh, since the, uh, but certainly by the time we got into the 21st century, um, mm-hmm. the access is no longer really there. Um, but this same spirit, I think, led a lot of scholars to go out into other parts of the world. Uh, so, you know, for instance, we know a lot more about what the Algerians were doing. Uh, we know a mm. lot more about what the Vietnamese were doing. We know more about what the Koreans were doing. Um, so I think a lot of the, uh, the new scholarship uh, that I used uh, to write my book um, was written by people who were doing this multilingual, multi-archival mm. uh, type of work. And that was my first book. I sought to do that with the, uh, with the Palestinians uh, and uh, this current book, the, the, the Cold War book um, is largely synthetic in bringing a lot of that together. Um, mm-hmm. But in addition to that, uh, we've also had a large cache of documents uh, that were uh, not only declassified, but made widely available by the CIA. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are, this is the crest uh, collection that used to only be available if you were to go to the National Archives in Maryland and uh, sit on a computer that was uh, presumably owned and controlled by the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, But they, um, uh, I guess, maybe five years ago, at this point in time, uh, they put all of these files online. Uh, And so I was able to use a lot of those files as well. So the book is titled The Cold War's Killing Fields and subtitled Rethinking the Long Peace. Can you say something about why you chose that title and subtitle? Yeah, so the the title itself, um, I was trying to um, conceive of a way to discuss uh, a geography of mass violence during Mm -hmm. the Cold War. Um, my sense was that when people in my field, when historians who worked on the Cold War talked about the Cold War, they had kind, they'd largely come around to this idea that there was a lot of violence taking place around the world, uh, during the Cold War. Um, I, I remember, uh, back in the 1990s, uh, Walter Lefebvre. Uh, wrote an essay in a, a edited col- collection about the end of the Cold War, and he he throws out the number that something on the order of I think 21 million people are killed in violent conflicts mm-hmm. during the Cold War. Uh, and in part, this is a response to John Gaddis's uh, argument about the long peace. Um, but what Lefebvre does is he throws out this number of 21 million, um, but he doesn't 
really go on to explain, you know, where, right? Mm-hmm. It's the the idea is that uh, you know millions and millions of people die in the third world, uh, and then he moves on, uh, and he does that because you know he has other interests, but uh, mm-hmm. that just kind of has remained a hanging question. Uh, so you know, very really, none of the other books uh, on the uh, the the Cold War and the Third World really try to map out a geography of where this takes place. Mm-hmm. So one of the key things I wanted to do with the book was to really dig down into this question of you know where and when this violence takes place, right? Because it, it mm-hmm. struck me that we didn't really have a satisfying answer, uh, and as a result, we sort of had this shapeless sense of the Cold War and the Third World. Uh, it was it was this this idea that the Cold War just kind of happens everywhere in the Third World. That the Third World is just a bad place to be between 1945 and 1990, uh, which in the broadest brush strokes is true. But the reality is, it's it the, the violence is happening in specific places at specific times. Um, and so one of the things I wanted to do, uh, with the title was to capture a certain sense of geography. Uh, and so I was playing around with different names mm-hmm. for this, uh, this strip of territory that I ultimately identified as representing, uh, the, uh, the central theater of, of military operations and mass violence during the cold war, which is essentially a strip of territory running from, um, from Manchuria down into Southeast Asia, then across South Asia and uh, ending in the Middle East. Mm. You talk in, in your introduction about using a metaphor of the Cold War as functioning as a kind of central nervous system. Can, can you talk about what you mean by that? Yeah. Yeah. So that idea came actually from an article that I had read um, that was one of the, one of the articles that was written by Michael Geyer um, uh-huh. and uh, uh, Charles Bright. Uh, and I think they were talking about great power competition in the 19th century, mm. but I might be mistaken. Um, but they have a line in that art- article that uh, says that, you know, there was no central nervous system that was connecting these various conflicts that they're talking about. Mm. Uh, and that really resonated me with me um, as being a really powerful metaphor to discuss uh, some of these, uh, these international and global connections. Right. And, and for, for international historians, that's, I think, always a major challenge mm-hmm. is trying to find global spaces in which to tell stories. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, uh, we're, we're very good as, at historians at using national spaces right? and using, using the nation state as a container in which to narrate a history. Uh, but once we you know, move beyond you know, nation states, it becomes more challenging. Right. We can do it for wars. Um, mm-hmm. We can do it for, you know, a specific set of international relations. Uh, we can do it for international organizations, right? But finding global spaces that you know really serve as uh, settings for narratives is a challenge. Uh, and so, this notion of a central nervous system uh, that you know was um, was often messy, and you know it was was connected, but you know was was also deeply intricate and, and connected in, in ways that allowed for, you know, two-way communication um, really kind of stuck with me. And so I was in trying to describe the Cold War, 
uh, that is uh, something that I decided to to kind of borrow from them mm-hmm. and then make the argument that the Cold War actually did function as a central nervous system uh, to the extent that, you know, uh, for instance, violence taking place in Bangladesh in 1971 has an impact on uh, the conflict taking place in Vietnam, for mm-hmm. instance, at the same time that it has an impact on politics in Beijing, politics in Washington, and politics in uh, in Moscow. And so it is all interconnected in ways that are not always immediately obvious. So we'll get into specific questions about each of these phases as we go along, but but can you, you, you divide broadly speaking the Cold War in these regions into three phases. Can you just kind of summarize these three phases and, and, and how they differed from each other? Mm-hmm. So when I was first trying to answer this question of, um, of where and when uh, this Cold War violence took place, uh, I stumbled across this graph that uh, was put out. I I include the graph in my introduction. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It was put out by the Human Security Report Project, uh, which was run out of uh, Simon Fraser University uh, by a scholar named Andrew Mack. Uh, And uh, what this graph shows is that it it, it basically is a a graph of... uh, of the, I guess, what do they call it? The number of reported battle deaths mm. by year and divide it up into regions. Uh, and if you look at it, what you see is it's, it's dramatically uneven. Um, there are certain periods where uh, you know, the, the yearly levels of violence are very high, certain periods where the yearly levels of violence are very low. And if you just, again, if you just look at the graph, you see that there are really you can identify kind of three different waves. Um, and this is one of the things that, that really struck me um, as I set out to write the book. And um, essentially what it is, what it is, is it, it, it indicates that there are patterns to this violence. Uh, and so I wanted to describe those patterns and the, the again, I guess the metaphor of waves uh, made sense in this respect. So the first wave um, breaks out uh, basically around 1946 and lasts until 1954. And nearly all of this violence is taking place in East Asia. Uh, And it's essentially uh, composed of the Chinese Civil War and the Korean War, and to a lesser degree, the French Indochina War. Um, And so basically this, you know, these are, this is a, a, a series of conflicts, all of which take place, you know, they, they, they're connected by both time and place. Uh, and so that's the first wave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, it comes to an end in 1954 as a result of the, uh, the Geneva negotiations uh, that uh, resolves uh, the Korean War, uh, that, uh, you know, brings about an end to the French Indochina War. Uh, and then you have a period of relative peace uh, consuming the second half of the 1950s. In the 1960s, violence picks up again. This time, it's concentrated around South and Southeast Asia. Uh, so again, the second wave uh, of conflicts that are, are both geographically and chronologically close together. 
Uh, that wave lasts into the 1970s and really comes to an end uh, with the Third Indochina War, um, uh, circa 1979. A third wave then breaks out uh, in the, at the end of the 1970s, this time located in uh, Central Asia and the Middle East, and essentially lasts through the 1980s uh, and, and ends uh, basically right around 1990. And that, of course, consists of the Lebanese Civil War, the Iran-Iraq War, and the Soviet-Afghan War. And so what you have is you have these three different waves of violence uh, that are, break out first in East Asia, second in Southeast Asia, and then third in the Middle East. And so you can actually track a geographical and chronological movement of warfare across both time and, and space. And so let's look at each of those in turn. <clears throat> and, and, and given that this is uh, the nature of this podcast, we'll probably linger on the second one more than the first or the third. But still, um, why is it so important for the way the Cold War works that the Communist Party in China wins the Communist Civil War? So I think that the... The Chinese Civil War is really the starting point uh, for for a lot of what this story is. Um, mm. Essentially, what Mao and the communists do in the Chinese Civil War is show that this type of um, sort of, uh, I guess, guerrilla revolutionary activity uh, organized by communist parties can actually work in a post-colonial mm. environment. Right, it's not something that is only effective in the heavily industrialized, uh, you know, uh, European territories. Right, Mao puts a non-European face on revolution, uh, and he also leaves his, uh, you know, various uh, collections of uh, of guerrilla ideologies as a sort of blueprint for how to replicate uh, these sorts of revolutions elsewhere. Uh, there is also a, a modest, it's not extensive, but it is significant uh, aid work, aid network that is set up uh, by Mao and the communists that uh, in turn fuels uh, some of the revolutionary activity in French Indochina and Korea. Uh, this also serves as kind of a wake-up call to both the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, who up until around 1948-1949 are really focused on the Cold War as something that ha that is happening in Europe and the Mediterranean, right? So the initial crises of the Cold War uh, are taking place in Iran, in Greece, in Berlin, and a lot of their attention is is focused on. Uh, what we can think of as, as this, uh, this Western theater. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, meanwhile, Mao and the communists are engaged in what is at the time, the largest and bloodiest conflict taking place in the world, which is the Chinese civil war. And they're doing so under, you know, an international system where both Stalin and, uh, and Truman are actually supporting Chiang Kai-shek, right? Which is, uh, one of the sort of remarkable, things about this story is, um, you know, essentially the Soviets are not uh, officially backing Mao and the communists at the, at, in the early stages of, uh, of the Chinese Civil War after 1945. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Um, and that is the case for a variety of reasons. But one of them is that Stalin doesn't actually think that the communists can, can be successful. And in some ways, he doesn't want Mao and the communists to be con- to be successful because the Chinese Communist Party is not controlled by the Kremlin. Um, so what what Mao and the communists managed to do is to show that this actually works. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really sends a signal uh, to the rest of the world, including leaders in Moscow and Washington, that the locus of a lot of this activity, um, revolutionary activity and military activity after 1945, is not going to be in Europe. Uh, and it, it's going to be in East Asia. Uh, and so that really is, is sort of, a, uh, I guess, uh, you know, a, the, the starting bell uh, for a lot of what comes after. One of the things I was struck by in your discussion of the Korean War was the level of violence committed by both the North Korean and the South Korean regime and, and perhaps to some degree their allies against civilians. How does, how does that fit into this broader picture of violence? at the beginning of, or the, the, or beginning phases of the cold war? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, the, uh, the Korean war was a conflict that, you know, as, as someone who is trained as a American diplomatic historian, um, it was a conflict that I was familiar with. Uh, but I was familiar with, you know, primarily through the eyes of U S policymakers. Um, and so there's a very very uh, compelling, very engaging narrative uh, in the historiography of what the Korean War was, as far as the Americans were concerned. Um, you know, and you have these colorful, colorful figures like Truman and uh, and, and MacArthur, uh, and this you know these dramatic charges up and down the peninsula. This moment where they almost lose at the beginning, the Incheon landings, uh, right? And it all makes for for a very good story. Uh-huh. Uh, but if you actually, if, if you actually go down to the ground level and you, you write, uh, North and South Koreans, uh, and in particular, uh, Korean civilians into this story, it, it begins to change dramatically. And, and the book that really, uh, that I read that really, uh, uh, reveals this, I think better than any other that I'd come across, uh, was, uh, Bruce Cummings, uh, mm-hmm. wrote a book on the Korean war, uh, that came out. Uh, not that long ago. Um, and he's particularly interested in uh, the prevalence of civilian massacres um, committed uh, by the North Koreans, by the South Koreans, and also by the Americans uh, during the course of the war. And so a lot of the book, uh, you know, goes in to investigate some of these stories. So, you know, there's a, there's a famous case uh, of a, essentially a, some, something that's somewhat analogous to the My Lai massacre that takes place mm-hmm. in Vietnam that actually takes place in Korea. Um, and this, I think, begins to present the Korean War in a very different light. Um, and I, I would say that it was, it was important in shaping the story that I wanted to tell on a broader canvas about the, the Cold War and the Third World. Uh, which is this idea that, you know, for, for the Americans, the purpose of the Korean War was, uh, to, was largely geostrategic, right? It's, uh, it's to restore the border at the 38th parallel, then it's to roll back communism. Uh, but for the Koreans, this is really a, a struggle and a, and a war 
for the very heart and soul of their society. Um, and the stakes of that conflict, um, I think, lead to a level of violence uh, that is exercised on the ground uh, that is really remarkable uh, and, mm -hmm. and horrifying. Um, and so what, what essentially ends up happening is you have a war for control over entire societies in which civilian populations become targets, uh, become prizes, uh, and, you know, you really open the door to this sort of mass violence and, and oftentimes deliberate violence against uh, civilians uh, that you witness in Korea and that I ultimately argue uh, is a hallmark of a lot of the conflicts taking place uh, during the Cold War. Yeah, so so let's let's hit at that a little bit more, and and by moving into the second phase of of, of your your study, um, and as I read it, in some sense, the first phase was about demonstrating that communist revolution, ideologically communist revolutions can and did work in the third world or post colonial world. The second phase, then, as I read it, is about the failure of the next set of communist revolutions. Is, am I reading that right? Is that, that the dynamic of the second phase? Uh, to some degree, yeah. Um, but beyond just the simple failure of some of these revolutions, um, it, I, I think it reaches back to the impact of the Sino-Soviet split. Mm -hmm. on the cause of third world revolutionary uh, politics. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, essentially what you have with this first stage is you have a story about, about the Communist Party in China and the Communist Party in the Soviet Union coming together and deciding that they can work together. Mm -hmm. um, and they do that during the course of the Chinese Civil War. Uh, they continue to work together, you know, to varying degrees in, uh, in, in the Korean War uh, and in the French Indochina War. Um, but there are seeds for later conflicts that are, that, you know, exist in the relationship uh, already by the late 1940s, uh, in part uh, as a result of resentments on the part of the Chinese that the Soviets don't do more to help uh, the Chinese uh, revolution. Um, uh, during the Chinese Civil War. Um, and then there's a power struggle that breaks out between Khrushchev and Mao uh, and a, you know, an argument over Stalin's legacy in the mid-1950s. And that really grows and uh, begins to break open in the 1960s. And so what you see in the 1960s is this energized left-wing guerrilla movement uh, that is taking place across a lot of the world. Um, that is, is, has, has kind of seized the spotlight, but mm -hmm. then in the background, you have the unraveling of uh, Sino-Soviet relations. Mm -hmm. And so initially, um, you have you know, very encouraging signals coming um, from the Vietnamese Revolution, which seems like it's, it's, it's really working well. Um, but then you know, beneath the, the high drama of the Vietnam War, uh, you have events uh, such as the massacre of the Communist Party in Indonesia in 1965, 
uh, and the Sino-Soviet border clashes in 1969, as the decade continues, that really signal the unraveling and the collapse of the Sino-Soviet alliance, uh, which I argue is instrumental to understanding a lot of these conflicts in the 1960s and 1970s, and then also understanding why international politics begins to change uh, by the time we get to the late 70s and early 1980s. You, I, I think you, in fact, say that that the transformation of the strategic landscapes of the Cold War by the 19, late 1970s was profound, but is less true because of Vietnam, which Americans, I think, would tend to assume than it was for events in Indonesia and Bangladesh and, and maybe Cambodia. So I guess I'd ask you to take each in turn and maybe start with Bang, Bangladesh. Um, how does Bangladesh fit into this story? And, and how do you understand what happened in Bangladesh? So Bangladesh is, um, you know, as, as I write in the book, in some ways, it's, I think it's the most tragic mm. story of the Cold War, because it really is, I think, a case of a society uh, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, what has happened in in Bangladesh uh, in the uh, the late 1960s, 1970s, is that you have a state of, of Pakistan, which is divided into two unequal halves, right? You have uh, West Pakistan, uh, which is the, the Pakistan that, that most people know today, uh, which is... Um, uh, has has the uh, the minority of the population, but has essentially control over the political system and uh, a a lot of control over the economic system. Then you have East Pakistan, which has uh, the uh, the majority of the population, but really doesn't have uh, much in the way of political power or economic influence. Um, and so you have tensions, and and the reason why this. Why these? Uh, why you have a, a, a nation that is split in two like this is, of course, the legacy of colonialism, right? When the British pull out and uh, India is partitioned in 1947, with mass violence taking place, something on the order of half a million people probably die violently um, as a result of the partition of India. Uh, you have this uh, what's described by some contemporaries as the as a geographical monstrosity mm-hmm. that is created in South Asia, uh, and so you know there are various tensions uh, by the time you get to 1970 uh, and and whispers of uh, secessionist movements in East Pakistan. Um, then uh, in in 1971, you have a um, a cyclone, uh, a massive natural disaster that hits East Pakistan. Uh, it mobilizes support around uh, a secessionist movement, uh, and it uh, sheds a light on the fact that a lot of the money and political influence, as well as military power, exists in West Pakistan, and uh, West Pakistan doesn't do a good job with relief efforts. Um, this happens on the eve of national elections. Uh, the uh, the Awami League, which is an East Pakistani kind of nationalist party, wins national elections, which uh, would give them a controlling influence in uh, the Pakistani parliament. And uh, Pakistani leaders uh, decide that they don't want to allow uh, this uh, this Awami League to take power uh, because they fear that uh, that the the new leaders will pull. 
East Pakistan out of the country. So they essentially launch a, uh, a widespread crackdown against the Awami League and against uh, you know what we can think of as as uh, proto Bangladeshi uh, revolutionaries, uh, which develops into a full blown guerrilla war. Now the tragedy in all of this uh, comes in because this is precisely the time that Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger are negotiating. Uh, what will become the opening to China. And Pakistan, particularly leaders in West Pakistan, provide the back channel that allows Nixon and Mao eventually to come together in 1972. Uh, so this really is a case of, um, of Pakistan, or, or rather East Pakistan, uh, soon to become Bangladesh, being in the worst possible time, uh, worst possible place in the worst possible time. Uh, so as the violence in East Pakistan develops into what U.S. State Department officials call a selective genocide, uh, the Nixon administration continues to supply military equipment to the West Pakistani military, which is engaging uh, in massive civilian atrocities against uh, the East Pakistani population, uh, which in turn... Um, you know, it becomes uh, a major uh, international humanitarian issue, uh, is an important story in the development of a broader human rights consciousness in the 1970s, uh, and essentially allows for this strategy to continue. Uh, eventually, um, the, uh, the West Pakistani crackdown is brought to an end when India decides to uh, launch a war against uh, against the Pakistani military forces, uh, in large part because Indian officials are um, are concerned about the destabilizing influence of the massive refugee flows coming from East Pakistan into India, which is uh, threatening to sow uh, chaos and uh, potential state collapse in India itself. And this leads directly into the 1971 India-Pakistan War, uh, in which, once again, um, uh, Henry Kissinger and uh, Richard Nixon are uh, on the wrong side of history. They support the Pakistanis. They see this as a, a case of Indian aggression uh, and ultimately as a um, kind of a, a, a proxy conflict of the larger Cold War. They fear that the Soviets are behind some of these activities. Um, and essentially, in the course of the violence, hundreds of thousands of uh, of uh, East Pakistani civilians are killed, uh, but uh, Bangladesh uh, gains its independence. Mm -hmm. So Bangladesh was a tragedy. I, I, I see you writing about Indonesia as maybe a turning point. Is that an accurate sense of how you see the, the massacres in Indonesia? Absolutely. Yeah, um, I, I see Indonesia as, again, a reflection of some of these tensions growing out of the uh, collapse of the Sino-Soviet alliance. Mm -hmm. um, so Indonesia in the early 1960s really is a site of um, what we can think of as a three-way competition between the United States, China, and the Soviet Union for influence. Um, and at the center of this, you have Sukarno, who is trying to maintain control over this post-colonial state uh, that he has created. It's a, uh, an incredibly diverse country um, made up of, of uh, scores and scores of different ethnic groups. 
And Sukarno, uh, you know, has has uh, throughout his time in office tried to balance these groups off of each other. Uh, so by the early 1960s, you have this situation where the United States is backing uh, conservative leaders in the Indonesian army. Uh, the Soviet Union has uh, a level of support among leaders in the Air Force uh, because the Soviets uh, provide aircraft uh, to the Indonesian Air Force. And the Chinese have a great deal of influence in the Indonesian Communist Party, PKI. Uh, and this all begins to fall apart uh, in 1965 as Sukarno begins to move Indonesia closer to China, and you have what looks like, but has not, I think, yet been proven to be um, some sort of U.S. involvement in what becomes a coup uh, that removes, that will ultimately remove uh, Sukarno, but also have the side effect of unleashing a, uh, a military-led massacre of the Indonesian Communist Party, uh, and something on the order of about half a million people probably, are killed uh, in a relatively short uh, period of time uh, between the, the fall of 1965 and the spring of 1966 in Indonesia. Now, uh, for, for the Cold War, uh, and particularly for U.S. ambitions uh, in Southeast Asia, what this means is that you have um, essentially Chinese influence in uh, one of the largest countries in the world and the largest and most strategically significant country in Southeast Asia, you have Chinese influence uh, being devastated, right? The, the PKI is destroyed and China essentially loses its foothold in Indonesia. Uh, at the same time, uh, a, the military leader, um, Suharto, comes to power in Jakarta uh, and establishes a military-led regime that is, uh, is, is strongly pro-Western in its, uh, its Cold War orientation, uh, which is tremendously good news for the United States and U.S. leaders who are concerned about fighting the Cold War in Southeast Asia. Now, incidentally, this is during the exact same period where uh, the U.S. military intervention in Vietnam is escalating. Uh, and of course, the American intervention in Vietnam is carried out in large part under the logic of the domino uh, theory, uh, this idea that uh, communist revolutions in one country are likely to destabilize entire regions. Um, and so essentially, uh, the, the, the fall of Sukarno and the rise of Suharto, along with the massacre of the PKI in Indonesia, transforms Indonesia from what had been a battleground between the United States, uh, the Soviet Union, and China to a firmly pro-Western state uh, with a conservative military regime in charge. What that ultimately means is that the domino theory no longer matters, because even if, Viet if South Vietnam falls, if it knocks over Cambodia, if it knocks over um, Laos, ultimately the real prize in Southeast Asia is, um, is Indonesia, and Indonesia is not going to fall. Mm -hmm. And so this really represents a turning point. Uh, historians argue that it, uh, it encourages the Chinese to rethink a lot of their activities, uh, in kind of encouraging revolutionary activity in the post-colonial world uh, and be 
begins a process which will culminate with Nixon's opening to China and the realignment of Beijing away from Moscow and toward the United States, which represents the final collapse of the Sino-Soviet alliance. And so if Bangladesh, East Pakistan, is a tragedy and Indonesia is a turning point, what is Cambodia? Cambodia is also a tragedy, I think. But it's a tragedy, but it's also, I think, a a major um, warning signal to other aspiring post-colonial revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because essentially what you have in in Cambodia is you have a a case where you have a a country that, you know, had initially tried to remain neutral, in the, uh, the, the war taking place uh, between North and South Vietnam, uh, but it ultimately fails to do so. Um, and it, as a result of that failure, it, uh, it descends into a full-blown communist revolution uh, in which, you know, out of which the Khmer Rouge uh, creates a new regime. That regime proves to be um, genocidal uh, in, in what I argue is one of the darkest chapters of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, in, in the space of several years, um, you know, seeks to, to wage a total revolution, uh, turning the clock back to year zero, uh, unleashes massive uh, political purges and, and brutal violence upon the population, empties out uh, the major cities and towns in the country, uh, sends the population out in the countryside, and unleashes a widespread famine that kills something around maybe one-fifth of the population, uh, maybe more. Um, And then at the end of this, uh, ends up starting a war against uh, communist Vietnam, uh, in which the Khmer Rouge is completely defeated, um, and the, uh, the entire, you know, specter of, uh, of post-colonial communist uh, solidarity is destroyed, right? Because essentially with the Third Indochina War, you have a case of um, three of the most successful uh, uh, revolutionary communist states in East Asia going to war against each other. Uh, you have the Vietnamese uh, invading uh, Cambodia and, or rather, uh, invading democratic Kampuchea and overthrowing the Khmer Rouge. And then you have uh, the People's Republic of China launching a war against uh, Vietnam. Uh, so what this does, I think, uh, the combination of, of these revolutions, of, uh, these revelations of just how brutal uh, the Khmer Rouge role, uh, rule had been, Alongside the specter of um, the, uh, the the these three revolutionary communist states going to war against each other, I think really saps a lot of the uh, the enthusiasm in the post colonial world from this idea that uh, that left wing communist socialist revolutionary politics is an effective way to build a post colonial state. Mm-hmm. So the next wave of violence happens in the 80s, and and you argue that it's in some ways just as bloody or almost as bloody, but the ideological motivations, the the, the driving nature of that violence is different. So talk a little bit about that change in, in, in the motivations for violence. 
So what happens in the 1970s, um, and this you know is, is that directly relates to to the Third Indochina War and the Sino-Soviet split, is that you have this idea that the best way to stage a post-colonial revolution is to um, to you know essentially adopt a model that uh, that was written by. Lenin and then revised by Mao and, you know, try to replicate it in your own country. Well, in the 1970s, that begins to fall apart as a result of the Sino-Soviet split and um, what is happening in Southeast Asia and the Third Indochina War. Uh, instead, by the end of the 1970s, you have the emergence of what appears to be a much more dynamic, much more successful revolutionary force. And that, of course, is uh, the Iranian Revolution in 1979. Uh, which uh, over the course of 1979 and into 1980 takes a theocratic turn, uh, and I argue that that is that that is really a story that is related uh, to these broader con uh, these broader sort of international um, changes in in the form of the dissolution of uh, of third world communist solidarity. Right. So um, essentially, if you are an aspiring revolutionary circa, circa 1980, uh, you can look out at a world in which uh, the Soviet Union and uh, the People's Republic of China are essentially rivals, if not uh, open enemies. Mm-hmm. You can look out at a world in which uh, the Chinese have gone to war against the Vietnamese. The Vietnamese have gone to war against the Cambodians. And you can look out at a world in which uh, Khomeini is in power in Tehran at the head of what appears to be a remarkably successful revolution. Uh, and so essentially what this does is, is, is present a choice to a lot of these aspiring revolutionaries uh, that, uh, that makes it clear that communism might not actually be the best way to organize uh, revolutionary political activity. Mm-hmm. And instead... Um, rather than sort of, you know, left-wing politics, uh, older forms of ethnic, sectarian, and religious identity might actually be a more effective means of organization moving forward. Now, at the same time, uh, the, the Sino-Soviet split also strips away one of the key sources of, um, of financial, uh, diplomatic, and, pol- and military aid uh, that had existed to revolutionaries around the post-colonial world. Right? In the 1950s, 1960s, the Soviet Union and uh, communist China were you know, excellent places to go if you sought uh, ideological training, if you sought uh, weapons as an aspiring revolutionary. By the 1980s, the biggest source of foreign aid for revolutionary groups is actually coming from the United States, from Pakistan, and from Saudi Arabia. And so there is also, I think, kind of a material component in this where the Sino-Soviet split destroys communist solidarity and destroys a lot of these uh, revolutionary aid networks. The United States, Pakistan, and Saudi Arabia by the 1980s have stepped in and become major backers of revolutionary activity. But of course, in this case, they're not backing communist revolutionaries. They're backing revolutionaries that organize themselves around ethnic and religious nationalism. Um. I'm watching the time a little bit. Uh, and so I, I thought I'd ask a kind of a broader umbrella question. And that is, you, you say 
that throughout this entire period, violence becomes a key instrument in state building. Uh, maybe you could expand on that and explain what you mean. So, you know, for a variety of reasons, I think during the Cold War, what, what ultimately happens is, is that you find that a lot of the most successful post-colonial state builders end up being individuals and groups that can marshal mm -hmm. mass violence. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the, I think to some degree that is a Cold War phenomenon. Um, part of that stems from the fact that you have a, an international system that is characterized by uh, intense ideological polarization. Um, so, for instance, if you are an aspiring uh, post-colonial leader and you need foreign aid, a good way to do that is to identify yourself as either, you know, stridently anti-communist uh, and thus reaching out to the United States and its allies for support or uh, a sort of died in the wool Marxist Leninist and reaching out to Moscow. Uh, and the influence of the superpowers, the influence of the Cold War and the influence of uh, aid networks emanating from Washington and Moscow, I think, encourage a radicalization of post-colonial politics, uh, the more moderate groups, individuals, you know, such as Sukarno, who try to chart a middle course, ultimately become pushed out in a lot of these cases. Uh, and frequently, they, you know, that violence is a key part of this. Um, so I think, it, to some degree, the Cold War, you know, shapes that story. Uh, but part of this also, I think, uh, is is not. A story about the Cold War at all. Part of it, I think, is is just a, a reflection on the nature of state building, um, because you know you, you can you can go back to and look at the creation of other nation states um, in earlier centuries, and you know very often they are characterized by uh, periods of, of mass violence. Um, so there are certain um, changes that take place during the Cold War that I think fuel some of this, but there are also uh, continuities with earlier eras as well. Mm -hmm. Well, it's an outstanding book, and I learned a lot from it, uh, and I encourage listeners to go out and grab it. It, it reads well, um, and he really does high, have an eye for um, for quotes and for anecdotes. In particular, while I always uh, understood that Nixon and Kissinger were somewhat cynical and realpolitik, there are some quotes that you have pulled out that just made my, um, I don't know, made my mouth, my jaw drop in the level of the cynicism, but um, we always end with the same two questions. So the first one is, um, can you maybe recommend to the listeners and, and maybe to me, my semester is done in about six hours. And in theory, I have a whole weekend to postpone grading by reading. Um, is there a book or perhaps a movie or something that you would recommend um, to the listeners that was uh, important to you as you were working on this book? Um, I would say that, that uh, Tim Snyder's Bloodlands oh, yeah. uh -huh. was uh, a, a really important book that uh, shaped the way that I approached uh, uh, this project. Um, just this notion that you know we can learn things by looking at, at at the geography and asking questions about you know where and when these conflicts and where and when this violence mm. takes place, and that you know that that can give us important um, new vistas on these questions. Uh, so that was an important book. And, uh, and then uh, Bruce Cummings, mm -hmm. uh, Korean War. Mm -hmm. uh, it was also a book that uh, 
in 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 the, the more narrow sense of of uh, of the Korean case, uh, which is important for all sorts of reasons, uh, also I, I think was really eye opening for me. Yeah, I have to say I, the the stereotype of Korea being the the, the forgotten war. Uh, I don't know if that is still true among graduate students and people who just graduated, but certainly when I went to graduate school, that was true for me. Um, right. And I, that I found that section of your book really fascinating. The second question is maybe an easy one or maybe not, I guess. Uh, and that is, what are you working on now? So now I'm... Um... I'm sort of kicking around the idea of uh, going back and looking at the Second World War. Uh-huh. Um, and it it seems to me that there has been a lot of really interesting book or a lot of really interesting work done uh, by uh, by people working in German history or Japanese history, uh, you know, or, or you know, national histories. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of the, uh, the broader... Um, international and, and global histories of the war have remained very, very traditional. Hmm. Um, and part of that is because the quality is, is very high. Um, you know, the, the questions are very clear. There's an audience for that, for these more traditional studies, you know, operational histories. Um, but it seems to me that at least among international and global historians, uh, who, you know, many of us, I think, view 1945 as this critical turning mm-hmm. point. Um, it seems to me that that there must be more to say about that, and it, it, it might be worth revisiting mm-hmm. uh, the Second World War as a, uh, as a conflict, um, as a global conflict that has an important impact on the way that we think about human rights, on the way that we think about race, mm-hmm on the way that we think about violence, and, and in particular on the way that we think about empire mm. and colonialism. Um, and I, I'm, I'm aware that a lot has already been said, uh, but I'm, I'm curious to see whether or not there is, is new space for, uh, for n- new work on, on this topic. You've been listening to an interview with Paul Thomas Chamberlain about his new book, The Cold War's Killing Fields. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or Stitcher or other podcast providers or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Book Network of podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when I'll talk with Eric Schoberg about his new book, The Making of the Greek Genocide. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.